to admit that after that amazing breakfast this morning, I feel a little bit like the afternoon of Thanksgiving. So I've got the double duty of keeping myself awake and you awake, but I'm up for it. Uh, we are in chapter 12 of Nehemiah, if you need time to turn there. Um, you notice we have a mic up here. Anybody want to do the names for me this morning? That's what I thought. All right. No, no, no. That's okay. All right. Um, as we start and you turn to Nehemiah chapter 12, let's open in a word of prayer. Father, we are so thankful that you give us a time to set aside every single week to simply focus on you. We thank you that we were able to engage in worship, ascribing greatness to your name. And Father, now we need that greatness implanted in our hearts and in our minds so that we might have great thoughts about you and be inspired to live greatly for your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, so we're in the book of Nehemiah, and so far, real briefly, we have seen three major events take place, three major themes in the book of Nehemiah. The first is that Israel is able to return to Jerusalem and restart the country, restart the city, restart temple worship. And so the first part of the book dealt with rebuilding those walls, rebuilding the temple, and getting Jerusalem to be a fit and acceptable place to move back, raise your family, and dwell in the land of promise that God had given to Abraham. We also saw that on the completion of those walls, there was an incredible celebration, and it started with the reading of God's word, the proclamation of the truth, and people were cut to the heart, and the priest stood up and said, hey, it's not just a day of mourning, it's a day of rejoicing, and so they turned it into a seven-day celebration with feasting and festivals, singing, and the reading of God's word and its application. And then we saw in the last few chapters, and we'll see in the last two chapters, that it became a little bit somber again when worship was reintroduced. God put his stamp of approval on what they were doing. And in chapter 12, we're kind of taking a, a, a brief survey again of what happened pretty much 90 years before the day that Nehemiah is celebrating in chapter 12. And sort of that reestablishing uh, the worship. God has always valued worship. And he's always used us to worship. One of the very odd quirks that I have is visiting cemeteries. Not that I go visit cemeteries, but when I go visit a cemetery, it's always kind of fascinating to read the names on the tombstone the dates that they live. And I know it sounds really morbid, but I often wonder to myself, wherever my grave marker will be one day, will anyone ever walk past it and wonder, I wonder who that was? Or will I just simply be lost to history? I'm pretty um, lucky in the sense that I've had relatives do a lot of genealogies. I don't know if you've done genealogies in your family, but it's always remarkable to find some kind of little tidbit about an ancient relative that maybe lived 100, 200, and we've been able to go back almost 600 years in some of the, the family history. And it's real interesting to see the details about their life, but I only know 
name, births, where they live, maybe their occupation, their children, their marriage, and that's it. I don't know anything about the person. I don't know their stories. I don't know how they celebrated holidays. I don't know what their hopes and dreams were. And it makes me think, 200 years from now, what will people know about me? Now, we have the digital age, and so we can put everything online, and so eventually it's all going to be searchable by anyone that wants to search it, but will anyone in 200 years want to search your name? And all of a sudden, you start to feel a little bit small, and then you start to feel a little insignificant, and then you wonder, well, why are we even doing any of this if no one's going to remember me? chapter 12 actually points to that difference. Because in chapter 12, again, it's a list of names that are hard to pronounce, but God knows each and every one of them. He knows their birthday. He knows their passions, their dreams, their hopes. He knows them intimately to the point where he knew every hair on their heads. He knows them intimately. And I don't think God forgets his children. And this chapter reinforces that God knows down to the details his people. And he does that in a very unique way through chapter 12, starting in verse 1. The first set of verses really go from verse 1 all the way through verse 26. And it is a recounting of the priesthood, starting with the days when um, Israel was first allowed back after the Babylonian captivity. So about 90 years after the day of Nehemiah, or before the day of Nehemiah, these are the priests who came back, starting in verse 1. These were the priests and the Levites who returned with Jerubalel, the son of Shetel. I may need a lot of water for this. And with Joshua, Sariah, Jeremiah, Ezra, Amariah, Maluk, Hattush, Sechariah, Rahum, Meramoth, I do, I do, I do, do, sorry. Oh, I lost my place. Oh, I don't have to start over. Verse 4. Uh, I do, do, Jinnaron, uh, Abijah, Majaman, Madoa, Madoai, Bilga, Shemaniah, Jurabab, Rib, Rabbit, Jedediah, Salu, Hamak, Hilkiah, and Jedediah. These were the leaders of the priests and their associates in the day of Joshua, so 90 years before the wall was rebuilt. And God is being detailed about the priesthood because he values worship so much. He says, from the very beginning when they returned, these were the people who could approach me in the Holy of Holies. These were the people who could lead the rest of the Israelites. They're of the lineage and tribe of Levi and of Aaron who allowed them to be priests. And then these are the leaders, in end of verse 7, of the priests and their associates in the days of Joshua. The Levites were Joshua, Benayu, Hadamiel, Sherebiah, Judah, and also Mataniah who together with his associates were in charge of the songs of thanksgiving, Barukiah and Unai, 
their associates live opposite them in the services. Very important visual thing to get in mind about Jewish worship. It looked and sounded a lot different than our worship. Our worship is generally leaded by someone who's standing up in front, and we sing together. And sometimes there are parts and harmony, but generally we kind of sing those songs together. But in the days of Israel, worship looked very different. It was divided on two sides, both with professional choirs, and the people in the middle, which were then Jewish men only, and everyone else was out in the, the hallways, they would be... Um, have you ever seen a rap battle? Okay, maybe that wasn't really the right. Um, or like a dance-off. All right, you had two sides, and this side would do this, and then that side would respond with this, and then that side would respond to that. It was done like that, but with worshipful music back and forth. And they weren't trying to one-up each other. They were just trying to get the other side to respond with even more joy and more excitement and more thrill for what they were singing. And so the people in the middle, us, the congregation, would stand there and listen to this, this singing back and forth. And they would sing the psalms, and it was just this resounding moment of crescendo of praise to God that filled the entire stage. And people would go to the worship to hear this songs of thanksgiving. And so when it says that they were set opposite, that means one side was singing songs of thanksgiving, then the other side sat opposite of that and responded with other songs of thanksgiving. So it was sitting in the middle, you kind of got this scary look that of seeing go back and forth, and um, it was supposed to be just this marvelous, divine elation of God's glory through song and musical instruments back and forth. But the congregation, the people who went to the temple, they rarely, rarely sang. They were just observers to this singing choir battle back and forth from the right side to the left side and back and forth. And so that's what we have set up here. And Nehemiah records, 90 years ago, we had this amazing response of worship that God gave Moses. That's how it was supposed to be done. And the temple was filled with that. And in the return of the exiles, they started that very first step. They sang to God. They sang worship songs. They sang songs and hymns of praise that invoked not just emotion. Hey, I recognize that song, so I like it. But it evoked God's glory. That the words resonated with the character of God. And the people loved it. They missed it. It had been generations since they had heard that kind of worship. Because they didn't have the privilege of just opening up YouTube or, or any of the other online music services and just listening. They didn't have that privilege. Their music was live and only live. And if they weren't the ones singing it, then they had to go to the temple to hear the worship. And God reestablished that and had these names written down as the ones who led the singing who led the worship, who God appointed to lead that congregation into a joyful reflection of who God was. Verse 10 continues it. It says, Joshua was the father of Jehoiakim. I want to make sure that when we're reading the word Joshua here in this chapter, we're not thinking of the Joshua 
that came through the promised land and was part of the book of Joshua and the book of Judges. Not the same Joshua. And in some translations, it may read Jeshua, depending on your translation. Uh, it's immaterial, but it's a different Joshua that's uh, being mentioned here. Verse 10, Joshua was the father of Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim the father of Eliashib, Eliashib the father of um, Joiada, Joiada the father of Jonathan, and Jonathan the father of Jedua. Uh, and in these days of Jehoiakim, these were the heads of the priestly family. So these were the ones who are of the tribe of Levi and of the lineage of Aaron. So they became the high priest, the one who would lead the actual worship service within the temple, do the actual sacrifices, as opposed to the rest of the Levites, who we saw last week, used to take care of the facility, they would help cleaning up, they would help protecting it, um, they just made sure that the services ran well. So these were the particular individuals who did the sacrifice and started the worship again in the temple. And that reads from verse 12 all the way through verse 21. And you can see those names written there. We've read several of those names before. And in your leisure, if you'd like to read some of those names to yourself, you're more than welcome to. Uh, but these are the names of the priests starting in verse 12 all the way through verse 24. Then we get to verse 25. The family heads of the Levites in the days of Eliashib. Now, these are the days when Nehemiah was there. So we've gone 90 years from verse 1 through verse 21. 90 years of history has taken place, and God is repeating. These are the names of the people that led in Jerusalem during the time when there was nothing there. The temple wasn't there. The walls weren't there. The city itself was in disrepair. But verse 22 changes that. The family heads of the Levites in the days of Eliashib, Jehida, Jonathan, and Jedua, as well as the priests, were recorded in the reigns of Darius the Persian. The family heads among the descendants of Levi up to the time of uh, Johanan, the son of Eliashib, were recorded in the books of the annals. So verse 23 is just telling us some of these details are recorded for us in the book of First and Second Chronicles, okay, which is kind of a summary of the history of the later kingdom. So, the, so if you want those details, it says go to the book of the annals, which is the book of First and Second Chronicles. And the leaders of the Levites, verse 24, were Hashiabai, uh, um, Jehirabai, Jeshua, son of Kadamiel, and their associates who stood opposite them to give praise and thanksgiving. One section responded to the other as prescribed by David, the man of God. So we have, again, 90 years after this chapter started, we still have this moment of reflective worship back and forth. And God says, these are the individuals who led worship. These are the ones who made it all possible. Verse 25, Mathaniah, Bakiah, Obadiah, Meshulam, Palman, and Hakiab were gatekeepers who guarded the storerooms and the gates. They served in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Joshua, the son of Jezadak, and in the days of Nehemiah, the governor of Ezra, the priest, and the teachers of the law. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11, if, you, if you're able to do that quickly and easily. 
But chapter 11 in the book of Hebrews is that beautiful chapter sometimes called the great cloud of witnesses. And this chapter, God puts in the book of Hebrews to remind us that everyone in the history of God's kingdom has value and importance, even if they're not mentioned by name. Without them, the church would be lacking. God's people would be lacking. And the entire chapter is just riddled with great summary points of the entirety of the Old Testament. And towards the end of that chapter, in verse uh, 20, uh, 38, 39, and 40, we read in Hebrews chapter 11, the world was not worthy of them, those that had lived the Old Testament. They wandered the deserts and the mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what was promised. Since God had planned something better for us, that only together with us would they be made perfect. God does a beautiful way of connecting the Old Testament saints with the New Testament saints. And in essence, the bottom line is that we are connected. We are interdependent. Without their faith, without their struggles, without their stories, without their use by God, we would be lacking. And without us, on the New Testament side, their faith would also be incomplete and they would be lacking. Both sides are completely necessary. Without one side, the other side couldn't happen. Without that person that lived 400 years ago in your family line, you wouldn't be here today. Whether you know their name or not, whether you know the details or not is irrelevant, they had value. And by God's grace, you're here today because of that event, because of that life, and those lives that have gone before you. So we stand in that beautiful relationship with God, with our faith, maybe easier to understand than it was in the Old Testament, certainly fuller and more descriptive, and certainly on this side of the cross, we know who Jesus was, and we know the details of his life and his death and his resurrection. They were looking forward to just the hope of that sacrifice. We look back to the satisfaction that the sacrifice took place. But our faith is built on that. And their fulfillment of the promises are built on what has happened after the cross. No one is left to obscurity. And chapter 12 of Nehemiah just puts a stamp on that. These people were valued by God. They had an intricate relationship with the people. They were necessary for the advancement of the kingdom, even if they're lost to history, even if we don't know where they're buried, even though we only know a first name to some of them. God valued them. And God used them. Even though we don't know the details, God used them. God uses all believers for whatever goal and purpose he has for our life, for whatever goal and purpose he has for the local church and the universal church. God uses the people to accomplish his mission, which is, ideally for us, the message that Jesus Christ has come and died for the sins of the world. And unless we believe in him, we will perish. But God has given us a way out by faith, believing in his sacrifice, we are redeemed and saved, and we are moved into the kingdom of light, out of the kingdom of darkness. 
We are all connected by that simple yet eternal message that God gives hope through Christ. He continues in the book of Nehemiah, and I want to point out just verse 30 first, and then we're going to go back to the rest of the verses. But in verse 30, we have this small little verse that has tremendously important impact. Verse 30 of chapter 12 of Nehemiah says, When the priests and Levites had purified themselves ceremoniously, they purified the people and the gates of the wall. I have to tell you that the purification part of it um, had to do with blood and water. They took blood and water and they sprinkled it on them. So the imagery is kind of... a little hard to stomach early in the morning on what they were doing. But they had to purify. Why did it mean purification? And what's the whole deal with purification? The whole Old Testament is filled with moments where God says, this is holy. And moments where he says, this is unholy, and it needs to become holy. Which means it needs to become separated from its ordinary use to an extraordinary use. It needs to be given in dedication to God and made pure and clean. And the way God symbolized cleanliness to the people was a washing with water and washing with blood of a sacrificed animal that was unblemished and perfect. That if the article or the wall or the building or the house was washed symbolically with blood and water, then it was made clean and it could be used for God's holy use. And in the Old Testament, that was very physical. Literal blood, literal water being sprinkled on something for God to cleanse it. For God to say, okay, it is pure and right to use for me. And so it is a perfect timing for this purification to take place in the whole city of Jerusalem. Which had just been rebuilt. The entire temple, which started to be rebuilt, but the walls were already intact around the temple. That if they were going to use this as God's holy city, as a place where the message of hope would spring forth, the place where Jesus himself would come and fulfill the promises, if this was going to be a place of God's worship, of God's people dwelling together in unity and serving him with joyful, clean hearts, then it all had to be purified, set apart, made holy. And the priests and the Levites that day did exactly Turn with me again to the book of Hebrews and chapter 9. Because in Hebrews and chapter 9, not only is the whole chapter sort of about the temple, the earthly temple and the spiritual temple being ourselves, but it also talks about the cleaning power of the ultimate sacrifice, the blood of Jesus Christ, and how he purifies us like they used to do in the Old Testament. See, everything they did in the Old Testament Well, almost everything, but all those things they did in the worship and the ceremonies and all the sacrifices and all the feasts and festivals all pointed to Jesus Christ. All were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And even this kind of hard-to-stomach sprinkling of blood and water is seen fulfilled in Christ. And Hebrews does a beautiful job in chapter 9, starting in verse 11, to describe the cleanliness, this purification that we undergo 
by Christ, just like the walls of the temple and the walls of the city were underwent in the days of Nehemiah. Verse 11, but when Christ came as the high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not a part of this creation. He's speaking spiritually. We are the temple spiritually. He did not enter by means of the blood and goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood. He didn't need things purified in front of him. He himself was pure, so he was able to give his own blood as a cleanse, thus obtaining eternal redemption. No longer did it have to be repeated. No longer did it have to go on and on and on and on. But it was done once and for all for eternal redemption. The blood, verse 13, the blood of goats and bulls and of the ashes and the heifers sprinkled on those who ceremoniously unclean sanctified so that they are outwardly clean. That's exactly what happened in chapter 12. Outwardly, the walls and the temple and the gates and everything that was just rebuilt by the Israelites were outwardly cleansed. Outwardly, symbolically clean so that they knew this place was ready for God's presence and a place where we could meet with God. Because at that time, God still locally manifested his presence in the temple. Does it differently now with us in that he indwells us? So no matter where we are, God is present in our lives. But in those days, still God used the temple as a sign of that, that presence with his people. In verse 14, how much more then did the blood of Christ and through the eternal spirit offer himself unblemished to God, cleanse our conscience from the acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. I know we have about 10 minutes left, but can everybody stand up real quick? This is for your benefit and mine. Because I see people dozing. All right, just shrug your shoulders. Yeah, well, don't have to do jumping jacks, Sam. But if it keeps you awake, just, you know, it's all right. Just move a little bit. It's all right. Shake. Breathe in, breathe out. Well, I don't want to relax too much. All right, so sit down. All right, we can go another 10 minutes. So let me read that verse 14 again because that was kind of when we were kind of drifting into that enjoyment of breakfast. Verse 14, how much more then? So we see all this sprinkling of blood and they would have used water as well. So we see all that happening in the book of Nehemiah. What's the connection to a book written so long ago about people who are dead and gone and forgotten by the rest of the world? What's the connection in what they did? Here's the connection. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from the acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living what a beautiful picture Nehemiah says. We cleansed him, made it right for God. Jesus cleanses us, makes us right for God so that we may live for him. Not just merely exist, but live for him. Israel saw that. This city is now a living city. 
God is present, God has cleansed it. We are on our way to triumph for His glory. Little do they know, no less than 50 years from this moment of Nehemiah, they would fall back to their habits of forgetting who God was and worshiping foreign gods and falling into sin. Up to 50 years from then. Up on a high, down in a valley. Then up on another high, and then down in a valley. Living for God, living to themselves. And Jesus came to teach us that we can break that entire cycle and just live for him because his blood completely cleanses us from all unrighteousness, all sin, all those ups and downs of life. Jesus says, I can just even out to be one big mountaintop experience. One big mountaintop experience. That can be your existence. Because you are cleansed, you are made white, and you are now dwelt by the Holy Spirit. Well, he goes on in that verse 27 all the way through verse 43 to really describe how hardships lead way to celebration. All of these people have gone through tremendous hardships, something that we've never lived through. They have no home country. Israel still is not a nation. It's just Artaxerxes said to Nehemiah, get down there and do some things. And I'll support you, and you'll be protected under my authority. Still part of the Persian Empire, but it's not even Israel anymore. It won't be again until quite a ways from Israel. They still have all of these threats from the outside, but it doesn't matter. Because in their mind, where God is, they're safe. And if God is now back in the city of Jerusalem, if he has now sanctified it and made it holy once again, his people are happy to be there. And it just exudes praise after praise after praise after praise all the way through here. And through those verses, the idea is on this particular day when everything was sanctified and sprinkled with blood, they had two massive choirs that started out at the temple and the two sides. And what the two choirs did is they started in opposite directions and started singing and gathered all the people that were around Jerusalem within the suburbs and the outskirts as well as inside the city. These two groups spread out and started singing and everyone joined them. Everyone started singing the songs together. And as they grew further apart, it was harder to hear the other side. But as they started to get together, Towards the bottom of the city of Jerusalem, they reconnected, and they went in one huge procession back up to the temple. And so how long that took, it would have been probably hours. But they sang for hours about God's rejoicing. And I can imagine how exciting it was as soon as they started hearing that other choir. As soon as they made that turn and they got together, and all of a sudden there was just this moment of jubilation when the choirs united and now moved their way back to the temple, and they were going to have one massive worship service. And they did. And there was incredible rejoicing. And when you took an, a bird's eye view of what they were rejoicing about, it was a small wall surrounding a small city in the middle of a desert with a temple that was just starting to be rebuilt. How could they be so excited about something like a wall? Really? But it wasn't about 
bring about the fact that they knew their God had not abandoned them. And that they were making their lives right with him again by getting back into worship. Connecting all of this home to us. And there's more notes there and more notes online and you can finish that. But I just want to simply make the connection for us. I know sometimes it's hard to stand for 25 minutes and sing some songs. I know it's hard because we may not know the songs. It may be hard because we don't like the range of the song. It's too high or too low for me to sing. But in the end, my brothers and sisters, this is more than just am I comfortable with the songs that we sing on a Sunday morning. It's about Him. It's about our connection with people that live almost 3,000 miles away. We don't seem to sing the same songs because we have to be singing in Hebrew, and trust me, that's not an easy language to learn. But we're singing to the same God. And the fact that God has said, gather together from every corner of Pueblo that you're at and come together and sing about my majesty, my glory, my power, my salvation, my son, should get us so excited that all the other parts that we deem are so vital for my enjoyment of worship should really disappear. And the only thing that should be standing in our moment of worship is one body of Christ worshiping one Lord and Savior of us all. And I don't want walls to have to be torn down in order for us to be connected in that worship. We should already be connected in that worship because we're all focusing on the same object, our God, our God, our God, who in the fullness of time revealed to us this side of the cross, his son, Jesus Christ. So we have an immense privilege to sing great songs to God, knowing that the blood of his son covers us. These saints in the Old Testament had just the hope and promise of someone that was coming. We now know who came, when they came, and what they specifically did on our behalf. So if anything, our worship should be immensely stronger and more vibrant than their worships ever was. I'm going to pick on Preston. I know I saw that right. I just think it's a great time to end in a song. But you go. Obviously, then we give up too. So stand up. I don't... Okay, you got it? Thank you.
part of the children's choir. Make sure you're up here. As well as if you have not had a chance to meet some of the leadership team, we're going to be over here by this table right after the service. God bless everyone.